Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, we've been dealing with a lot of major wildfire and serious smoke issues this spring and summer around North America, and we've been experiencing, once again, record temperatures around the world that then tend to lead to more major wildfire and smoke issues. So I wanted to bring Open Snow founder and meteorologist Joel Gratz back on the podcast to give us a better sense of the science and the practice of smoke forecasting and wildfire tracking, and then also discuss some of the most common weather-related mistakes that he sees people making, and also discuss some of the best practices for adventuring outdoors. We had Joel on the podcast last fall, talking about the science and the art of snow forecasting, and our conversation today really serves as a perfect complement to our previous conversation, and so I highly encourage you to check that out, and we will include a link to it in the show notes of this episode. So whether you are someone that's new to hiking, biking, climbing, or adventuring in one form or the other through the summer season, or whether you've been at this for a really long time, I think our conversation today is going to provide a number of important lessons and reminders really for all of us, whether we've been at this a long time or are pretty new to adventuring in the outdoors. And so... Let's get to my conversation with Open Snow founder, Joel Gratz. Here we go. Well, Joel, welcome back to the podcast. And you just informed me that when we're done with this conversation, you are going storm chasing. Please say more. <laughs> That's right. And so this this is in the same vein as uh, our discussion about snow chasing and powder chasing in the winter that you can have lots of plans based on mid-range and short-range weather forecasts. But ultimately, the closer to the time of interest that you pull the trigger, the better chance that you have of success, however you define success. And so I had been watching uh, this day that we're recording for a couple of days uh, for storm chasing. When I say storm chasing, it's now uh, early July and I am based in Boulder, Colorado. And so when I say storm chasing, I am looking for a large thunderstorm that ideally is rotating, that will create beautiful pictures, amazing storm structure, and potentially a tornado. Hopefully that tornado goes over an open farm field and doesn't really impact anybody or anything and is just super beautiful. And uh, that's what I'm chasing. And so those are uh, pretty rare, but Actually, northeastern Colorado in kind of late June into early July is one of the places in the country that on average favors uh, tornadoes. So the uh, position of tornadoes or the possibility of getting tornadoes changes during the seasons. Uh, But it just so happens that kind of Colorado and eastern Wyoming, uh, June into early July is a pretty favorite time uh, for that to happen around here. But it doesn't happen that frequently. So... Uh, it's fun to try to go out and see. But this is just like 
snow chasing, right? There's a bunch of, and in fact, I just, I just talked to my wife about this because she was debating whether she would come with me or not. And just like snow chasing, you can spend a lot of time <laughs> and come up empty, you know, but you can also go out there and, and see something that is the most beautiful or fun thing that you've ever done. And so, you know, I was telling my wife, she said, well, is it going to be a good storm? I was like, I, you know, I can't tell you if it's going to be the storm of your dreams or we're going to drive around for five hours and come home and not having seen very much. Uh, but you got to give it a shot because if you don't leave your house and you just kind of armchair quarterback this and look at webcams and look at radar, you're just going to be wishing you're, you're out there. So every time you go chase some sort of weather, you learn something uh, for, for next time. So I'm excited to go out there and uh, see what we can find. Okay, so wait a sec. You're going storm chasing for the thrill of it or the sort of magnificence of this beautiful weather moment that, let's say, both beautiful and powerful, so kind of a sublime experience in nature, or you're going to learn something. What is the... What is the ratio? All of it. That's the <laughs> well. I'm I'm not necessarily a thrill seeker. Like I like I don't get excited about you know driving a car really fast. And and actually, probably the most dangerous thing storm tracing is the driving. Uh, that is be, because there's people out there. There's wet roads. There's wet dirt roads. Uh, you know, obviously, no matter what you do, you're distracted because you're looking at the weather while you're also driving. And so driving is and being focused on the driving and then being cognizant of I'm going to pull off to the side of the road, fully off the road, stop my vehicle, then look, uh, is very important to kind of have your wits about you because there's um, been far more people that have been injured, <laughs> you know, in the driving part of storm chasing than uh, actually getting into a storm and being hurt. Uh, by by the storm itself, but I uh, th this is just like skiing and powder because it's one thing to say oh there's a thunderstorm or there's going to be a big snowstorm fine, but the difference between a big snowstorm and a thunderstorm and the moment where you get two feet of blower pow on that slope or you get that tornado in that open field and you see it all come together under a fifty thousand foot cumulonimbus cloud that moment is. You just you don't know exactly where it's going to be, exactly when it's going to be, and so it's fun to go out and not just see the magnificence, but but try to confirm your predictions. Like, okay, I think there could be this moment today. Uh, I've looked at every variable, but I can't guarantee it. Let's go see uh, if it happens. It's kind of like when you think about um, shipping and delivery. They talk about last mile. Right, you can get it across the world, but you still got to get it right back to your house, right, or, or or the business. And this is that magnificence is that last mile, right? Like, yes, I know it's going to snow, but is it two feet of blower, or is it a little wind effect at eleven inches, or you know what is that perfect moment? Um, and so all of it is exciting, but the the learning is also great, right? Because I look at all this data, but sometimes you forget about a piece of data or. Uh, it doesn't go according to plan. And then you go back and you, you try to figure out, all right, what should I have looked at that uh, I didn't look at? And so, of course, there's some learning too. I, I can't give you the exact uh, um, uh, a ratio of, of what I'm excited about, but I will tell you that, you know, if if, um, if you just think about, I'm going to leave my house at three o'clock and I might not be back until nine and pretty much all of that time will just be spent driving. And you're like, wow, you're just going to literally like drive around for six hours uh, but I will tell you, in that six hours, not one time of that is is boring or concerning. It is an amazing amalgamation of of weather data, 
uh, looking at the right data and mapping too, right? A big piece of this is what roads am I going to take? How do I make sure that I'm in the right part of the storm so I don't get three inch hail in my car, but I can see a, a tornado and I have an out, right? In case the storm moves and I know how to get out of there and I'm not stuck on some dirt road that dead ends. So it's, it's just, it's an amazing game. Most people, I would say 99% of people that go out and do this are, are out there for the magnificence and the fun. There is a service element uh, where people do report tornadoes, hail, flooding, and that feeds back to the National Weather Service, and that helps them issue tornado warnings or just have better situational awareness. So there is a value there, uh, but let's not kid ourselves. Most of us are going out there um, to see it, and then if we're in a position to report something and help, we're happy to do it. Sometimes in, in the bigger storms, uh, if a tornado actually injures uh, or, you know, hits a house or injures people, you know, storm chasers are often the first people there uh, and they can help. Uh, but, you know, 99.9% of the reason people go out is the magnificence. Uh, and then if there is a service element, of course, then, you know, we all stop and, and do what we can to help. Uh, but it's mostly about uh, going out and seeing the weather. Anyway, not, not, that, not that everybody tuned in to hear about uh, storm chasing on the plains, but, but I often get the question, what does a snow-focused meteorologist do uh, in the summer? And uh, oftentimes meteorologists like all sorts of weather, not just one. And so while I am obsessed with snow and, and big fluffy dendrites, uh, snowflakes, uh, summertime weather is pretty amazing too. Clearly. And yes, we're going to talk more about summertime weather, including something that certainly in North America we've been thinking about and dealing with a lot, and that would be smoke. Obviously, there have been some massive fires in Canada that I imagine most listeners would have seen images, perhaps in particular around New York, uh, where we are seeing some pretty wild skies. And so I thought, who better to have on to talk about some of this and maybe where we really are today, this summer, you know, to provide a bit of context here well, then you, Joel, and telling us a bit about smoke forecasting. Absolutely. It's uh, it's an unfortunate thing that we have to think about, right? But um, I, I will preface this by saying that I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and the national weather media is mostly focused on the East Coast. And so growing up in Philadelphia, I thought that was awesome because that's, you know, that the nor'easters or hurricanes or, or whatever it is. But you realize... Uh, how East Coast focused it is when the headlines this year are just all about the smoke in the Northeast, whereas in all the other summers, <laughs> you know, the West is dealing with smoke and it barely makes a blip on the media and maybe you hear a little bit about it. So for context, uh, it, smoke happens, wildfires happen, they happen all over the world, they happen in Australia, they happen in Europe, they happen in North America, they happen in South America. So this is not a new thing that has happened in 2023 where all of a sudden the world has changed. Uh, yes, acknowledge climate change. Yes, acknowledge that temperatures are warming, uh, but also things get blown out of proportion. So we need to re remember that there have been fires, wildfires for a long, long time. You know, something that has changed is there's a lot more humans recreating in places that can cause fires. And so while weather conditions can change, historically, until there were a lot of humans out in the backcountry, uh, wildfires would start because of lightning. That's it. That's the only ignition source, right? A beaver doesn't drop a cigarette 
right? Uh, you know, deer deer don't make power lines that then then fall over and and uh, and create wildfires. So lightning has historically been the ignition source, and now it's often humans, uh, either by accident or carelessness, uh, or power lines that fall over or just have a mechanical issue and spark and create a fire, or uh, in some fires, cars. Uh, cars backfiring or uh, not just throwing cigarettes out of cars, but there can be car accidents and then cause a fire. Uh, there can be sparks coming off of the chains from a car that cause a fire. I think that happened in California a couple of years ago. Uh, so there's just a lot more humans around uh, in areas that can cause fires. So, so that's the background. So we've always had fires, uh, but now we're thinking about them a lot more. One of the most amazing things that has happened in, oh, I want to say in the last five years, but it may have gone back further than that is the ability to forecast smoke. Um, and so it seems kind of magical, but in a sense, it's not all that magical because we now know uh, that where wildfires are based on satellites, and, and we can map them too. The bigger wildfires get mapped by planes or even people on the ground, but satellites provide a view of the entire earth. So we know where fires are. We have a decent idea how fires grow based on temperatures or winds, or uh, and you know if it rains, they, they don't grow as much. Um, and we know the winds by virtue of weather models. So all of a sudden you put all those things together. We know that there's a fire there. We know based on the conditions of temperature and wind and lack of rain that the fire is probably growing. And then we know the wind direction. And we can put all that together in the weather model. And just like we would forecast the temperature or snow or rain uh, hours or days into the future, not perfectly, but pretty well, uh, we can do that with smoke. And so... Uh, I want to be very, very clear, like it was on the previous podcast, that these smoke forecasts are emanating from government agencies. Uh, it is uh, the National Weather Service, well, NOAA, N-O-A-A, uh, here in the United States, and also Canada has a smoke forecast, and then there, there's other organizations around the, the world. Um, but they have pulled all these models together and created a smoke forecast that then on OpenSnow, we have pulled in that data made it look really nice um, <laughs> and made it work really well on, on your computer or your phone and overlaid it on, you know, kind of a normal map that you're used to so you can pinch and zoom and pan around and all those things. And then you can animate it into the future. So um, this is, and people ask, okay, is smoke forecasting useful? Is it accurate, right? Like, oh, we know weather forecasting. You just make fun of it because it's not accurate. I will say most of the things that we do probably, or the, that meteorology does, I trust the smoke forecast very much uh, up to about two days into the future, like highly, you know, if, if the smoke forecast shows that it's coming or it's leaving, you know, within the next 48 uh, to 60 hours, that, that's a really high probability that it's going to happen because we know there's, uh, there's smoke there and we know what the winds are going to do. We don't know the, you know the exact wind speed of, you know, speed of each molecule moving through the air, but wind forecasting is, is pretty accurate. So I, I would say that's a very useful thing to look at when there are fires to see. Now there's two types of smoke forecasts that you'll see um, produced and that we have on open snow. Uh, one, uh, smoke near the ground and smoke in the sky. Uh, smoke near the ground impacts your breathing and air quality, um, and smoke in the sky is more of a visibility thing, right? So sometimes um, the smoke will mix up into the atmosphere and not cause super bad uh, uh, conditions for health near the ground, but it will make the sky <laughs> kind of a milky white, 
cause all sorts of colors of the sunset or sunrise, and it will kind of just, you know, make the sky not feel normal. So there's two ways to, to look at that, and you can see both maps. Um, and so there's another thing that we do on, on open snow, and there's a five, so, so the higher resolution smoke forecast that I really trust go out to about 48 hours, meaning it's a two-day forecast. So anytime you look at a map, uh, you can scrub, you can animate it into the future at about two days into the future, 48 hours or so. Uh, and that covers North, uh, most of the United States and, and North America. There's another global um, forecast for air quality, which is often dominated by smoke. So if there's smoke, then the air quality is bad. But there's other things too. There's just particulate matter in polluted cities uh, and things like that. So, um, and you'll see that more in um, in Southeast Asia um, and other places around the world. But that forecast goes out five days. So it's just a, you know, if you have an event coming up five days from now, you know, that two-day high-resolution smoke forecast is not going to help you <laughs> get out to five days, right? If it's Monday and you're looking out to Friday or the weekend, it's not going to help. Uh, but that other somewhat lower-range global air quality forecast will at least get you in the ballpark um, and see it. Again, it's not as high-resolution. It's not quite as good, but at least, you know, gets you close. So um, smoke forecasting, just to sum up, is highly uh, accurate within about two days. We have map layers for smoke on the ground and smoke in the sky that go out to about 48 hours into the future. And then there's another global air quality layer that forecasts about five days in the future. Not quite as high resolution, but it gives you a ballpark about what might be coming up, you know, the following weekend. Can you say a bit more just about what people ought to be doing with this information or, you know, certain individuals perhaps with certain conditions, you might want to be really paying the most attention to this metric, you know, of the three you've just named. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Or how do we interpret this information? Yep. So yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I'll preface that by saying I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to tell you, you know, you what to do. You it's know, okay. Yeah, I am. Oh, yeah, I yeah, am. Yeah, so right. I'll, uh, right. yeah, 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 I got you. Uh, no, I, I'm actually not for the one person listening who, who thinks you are. Know yeah. That. Um, yeah. So, so it impacts people differently, right? And, and I, think, I think the key is that um, it's prolonged, at least what I understand. It can be prolonged exposure. If you're sick, it's not going to make you feel better and it might make you feel worse. Uh, elderly or younger people, you know, have a problem. The way I think about it, just, you know, if you take that aside, right? Take out the very elderly, the very young, uh, or you're sick and you're like, cool, I'm just like, I'm lucky. I'm generally healthy. What should I do about this? You know, in general... For a lot of the smoke, unless it's terrible, it's like, well, you know, it's maybe not the end of the world, but if you were thinking about a massive effort outdoors or a really hard workout, you know, maybe the day isn't the day and maybe it's a lighter time or maybe you do something indoors, you know, if there's there's cleaner air. So here, here's what we do, or here's the, the way I think about it. I look at the smoke to, to consider if, hey, if Thursday's going to, just making this up, but if Thursday's going to be really smoky um, and I was planning that you know, seven hour peak to peak hike um, on there, maybe I'm going to reconsider that. But also what I do is kind of on the morning or on that day that I'm heading out, uh, we also have a real time air quality map. And that's by data um, from Purple Air, which are these kind of uh, community based sensors, you can you can buy them and put them up and it feeds data back into a central network. And it's really it's awesome. There are thousands around the world. Um, and you can see what the air quality actually is at your house. Because while the smoke forecast is useful 
right? It's one, not perfect. And so it's good to see what the real-time conditions are using that actual air quality layer. Um, and two, keep in mind that smoke is only one reason that the air quality can be bad. There, there could just be pollution reasons and other weather reasons that air quality um, can be bad. So for instance, in the Salt Lake City area, if you get often in the winter, if you get a stagnant weather pattern with no storms for a while, you get kind of a pollution layer <laughs> and the air quality is actually quite bad. Now up in the mountains right near Salt Lake, it can also actually be much better. Um, but so there's other reasons aside from wildfire to check the air quality. So I look at the smoke forecast to get an idea of, hey, maybe that day would be a good day or not a good day to have a prolonged outdoor activity. And then that morning or whenever you're heading out, I will look at the actual air quality um, data uh, which is also a map layer that we have on OpenSnow um, and many other apps do too, to actually just see, hey, is this moderately bad, really bad, terrible, um, all those things. So it's a continuum, uh, right? But it's just it's just another piece of the puzzle. So let's talk about wildfires and tracking wildfires. Let's talk about it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so uh, we can which is really amazing. And there's a, there's a couple sources of information. And uh, the way I think about wildfires is kind of like hurricanes is that you don't care at all until it's coming at you. And then you think, oh my gosh, I care about everything and give me all the sources of information and all the data. And now I need to be an expert on it. So what I'm about to say might not matter to you know some listeners at the moment because there's not a fire near them, but it, hopefully it's back good background so that if or when there is a fire close by, they kind of understand, and you understand uh, how we track them. So everything I'm about to, to talk about is also going to be on OpenSnow. There's a few other apps, um, but not a ton actually that make this data available. And, and I, I say that not from a bragging standpoint, but one of the things we're trying to do on OpenSnow is just make a lot of the data accessible and easy to see. So yes, a lot of weather data and smoke data and wildfire data exists on relatively obscure websites or just a handful of apps. And if you know about them, you're like, oh yeah, I, I know it's there, but it's hard to access. You really have to understand like where, where to look. So uh, I'm not saying we're the first ones to do this in any way, or you know, we're, we're a gift to the world by bringing this to fruition, but we're trying to make it easier to understand and more accessible. So, uh, so from a wildfire standpoint, uh, the way to know exactly where a fire is, is by a perimeter map and a perimeter map is usually made by an airplane flown by your government tax dollars, <laughs> our government tax dollars, um, at some point during the day. And that plane flows, flies really low over the fire if it's not too windy, obviously, but it's safe to fly. And it has an infrared sensor on it. Infrared picks up temperature, right? So it can map and it flies around and it maps with a high degree of accuracy what is burning and what is not burning. So often when you'll look at maps of wildfire perimeters and you'll see like very minute details, it goes down this ridge line and over this valley and then up and around, you're like, wow, that was done often from a plane flying over top, seeing where there are hotspots effectively and making a perimeter. Uh, be mindful of when that perimeter was made. Uh, most of the our app and, and most of the apps that you'll you'll see will sh tell you when that perimeter was last updated. It's not updated in real time. It's not updated minute by minute, maybe at best once a day. So if a fire is moving quickly, that's going to be out of date. Just something to think about. So it's a good concept of where the fire is, um, but it's not you know a minute by minute, minute um, update on where it is. The next thing that you'll see is satellite detected hotspots. So amazing that we're at this point in the world that satellites flying over kind of like Starlink 
Now there's a kind you know, Starlink has well, thousands of satellites, but they fly pretty low um, to the earth. There are not thousands of these satellites. There's only a handful, but they also fly pretty low to the earth and they can sense temperature. And they can tell with a decent degree of accuracy of, you know, where a fire is. Now, some fires are agricultural burning, right? It's not a wildfire. It's a farmer clearing something in a field. Some fires are detected um, because of the flames coming off of oil, uh, uh, you know, oil producing derricks. I don't know the exact terminology. But for the big wildfires, these satellites will detect these hotspots. And it's useful to look at them because we will map them on top of the perimeter of the fire. So what you'll generally see is you'll see an outline line of where the fire is, and then you'll see these kind of circles of where the satellites have detected recent hotspots. And so you can see those recent hotspots are probably where the fire is burning now, because that perimeter is just what has burned. But, you know, fires can last for days, weeks, months. So not the whole, the whole thing isn't on fire at any given time. And in fact, probably very little is actually on fire at any given time. So those satellite hotspots will show you probably what is on fire now or, or in the recent history in the last day or two. Um, so that's what you'll be looking at. And again, though, keep in mind, those satellite hotspots are often only updated every couple of hours because it takes time for the satellite to fly around the Earth and revisit that same spot. You know, if we had a Starlink version of these satellites where you had thousands of them, you'd almost have real-time um, coverage because there's one left, another one would come over. But at this point, we just have a handful. By we, I mean the U.S. government and shares that data publicly. Um, so you're looking at a wildfire perimeter and the hotspots, um, and that will be on Open Snow on our website. Uh, it's now just uh, so we know it's July 6th as we're recording this. I'd say it'll probably be on our website uh, by about July 10th and probably by the middle of July um, on, on our iOS and Android apps. And there'll just be a layer that you can go on, you can look at the wildfire perimeter, and then you can see the satellite hotspots. And you can also scrub back in time for a couple of days and see how those hotspots have changed, because ideally you can see you know, them decreasing if the fire is uh, coming down. This might be a bit of a departure here, but I want to maybe take this time to talk just a little bit more about the different technologies here. And so, for example, I think you just said, you know, if we had Starlink satellites set up, we could actually be tracking these hotspots, these epicenters of the fire, like in real time, which obviously would be pretty significant. Uh, absolutely not significant until it's the most significant thing to a person, right? And to a community, et cetera. Talk a little bit again. I know we sort of, you did this for us uh, when we talked last fall, kind of looking at snow forecasting. Talk a bit more about advances in technology. When are, can you pinpoint moments where it's like, oh, this was a real leap. This represented a real leap forward. And or what would the Holy Grail look like? in terms of getting even more accuracy. So it sounds like on your Christmas wish list would be Starlink satellites, more satellites where we would be getting basically real-time tracking of wildfire movement. Yeah, um, that's one thing. Although, you, you know, it's kind of like if you had any, if you could do anything, sure, I'd love all those satellites. But um, also for the bigger wildfires, there are... I think it's more of a communication issue because for the bigger wildfires, we have firefighters on the ground. We have planes in the air. It's all getting tracked. People are trying to you know, get evacuated. And it's not always perfect, um, but at least the fire teams generally know 
you know, what's happening, where the action is. So on the bigger fires, it's not like we don't know that they're there. Um, and also, you know, on a fire start, yes, it would be good if we knew where every fire start was within minutes, um, but those might be so small that a satellite wouldn't detect it, uh, right? And so uh, people are trying all sorts of things. So uh, cameras mounted with some, uh, you know, visual computing technology that can try to pinpoint on an automated basis if it sees smoke and then alert people. Um, so I, I think things are things are happening there. One thing I will mention, because um, you asked me, well, uh, two things. You asked me about wh what is what is the leap? Um, the leap in meteorology was decades ago when we got satellites in the air um, and, and radar too. Um, but sat satellites enabled global coverage of, because remember, most people don't live everywhere on the earth. The earth is mostly water, right? But weather is happening all across the earth. And if you want to know what weather is at your house, you have to look upstream where that weather is developing. And so you need to know where weather is everywhere on the earth at every moment. But most people or most places on earth don't have people to tell you that. So having satellites um, covering the globe at all times, we have that now. Uh, they're not kind of in a Starlink fashion with thousands of them in low earth orbit, but we do have um, we do have some of those, uh, and there are other satellites that just hang out over a certain part of the Earth and are constantly looking at that one part of the Earth. So you can pull them all together and know what's happening across the entire globe at any moment. Um, so that happened a couple a couple decades ago, and of course these satellites improved, but that was a major leap. Um, another you know major leap is just the computing, the technology, because that's so much data. You need the computing to be able to pull it all together. Um, but, but a lot of the advances in meteorology are, are <laughs> I hate to say it, this is just like getting yourself in shape. There is no one thing that you did that all of a sudden made you get in shape and now you hit the PR. You just worked your butt off for months and years, eating right every day, working out every day, making tiny mistakes, but hopefully making more gains until you've come out the other end, you're like, oh, I did it. And that is generally what's happening with meteorology is every year the models get just slightly better, the tech gets slightly better, and, and hopefully you push it forward, but there is not a major leap. One more thing though, to kind of counteract that is there's a private company called tomorrow.io that is uh, planning to fly a constellation, so meaning many um, low earth orbiting satellites uh, that will provide radar across the world. So in North America, where probably most of the listeners are, and, and also in Europe, we take for granted that the radar, you can just look on your phones and see if there's rain or snow coming with a high degree of accuracy. Now that breaks down quite a bit in the mountains because radar beams get blocked. And, and so in many mountain areas, you just have a very difficult time still knowing if something is coming, if rain or snow is coming. But for most of the population, it works quite well. But most of the earth Earth's population outside of the United States and Europe does not have radar coverage, or it's incredibly poor. And so Tomorrow IO has raised a lot of money as a private company, and they just put a proof of concept satellite into space, and the satellite's going to just rotate around Earth and basically provide radar from space. Not as high resolution as what we're used to, you know, on the ground, and it also doesn't update every four minutes like we're used to on the ground. Uh, but their goal is, you know, over a couple of years to have, I think, tens of satellites so that every place on earth will have radar uh, coverage at least once an hour, which, you know, is not exactly what we're used to in the North America. It's not going to tell you that a tornado went down and came up, you know, with four minute accuracy, but it's something, right? I mean, you can just imagine and most people all over the world just have no access to this and meteorologists have no access to this, right? We're just guessing at where it's raining um, or snowing. So um, that we'll see where that goes, right? I think it's awesome 
uh, that a private company has taken this on and raised a bunch of money. It's also challenging, right? Can they make the business model work? Can they keep investing? You know, it's one thing for Elon Musk and SpaceX to put thousands of satellites in space for internet because you could make the argument that, you know, everybody's <laughs> going to benefit from the internet and they can make that business model work in some way. Um, weather is like you want it, but can everybody pay for it? Where is the financing? Are, you know, generally rural poor communities in a lot of these, you know, other continents able to um, pay for this? Is it larger governments that are going to pay for this? And I think there's models here. I'm not arguing not to do this, right? Um, but that's just part of the challenge. And so I, I'm enamored by the entire challenge because they had to solve a uh, scientific challenge to do this, but they also have to solve a business model um, challenge. And stuff is not easy. Businesses don't aren't just born to work. Right, like everything is kind of against you until you prove it wrong, and so um, you know, I wish them the best, and, and hopefully this works out. But that's another piece of technology that is uh, that probably will play an Im improving role in forecasts over the coming years. Well, we might ask for an update on some business fronts with Open Snow at the end of this conversation. We talked about that a bit in our last conversation, but for now. Back to tracking wildfires. What else should we know? And perhaps relatedly, what else should we be doing with the information that we have in terms of tracking this stuff? So I, you know, as as a meteorologist with access to all this information and uh, who's somebody who lives in the West who thinks about it all the time, um, I look at the air quality map, I look at the smoke forecast maps, I look at the wildfire maps. But again, this is, even even for me, this is not a big deal until it suddenly is <laughs> a, a very, very big deal. Um, one, one th you know, something to keep in mind is the National Mother Service will often issue red flag warnings, which just mean be really careful because stuff could burn. <laughs> um, and so, you know, during a dry summer, you almost get immune to it, though, because every day feels like a red flag warning because it gets breezy in the afternoon and the soils are dry and 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 something could burn. And often there's nothing you can do because if there's a wild, if there's a lightning strike and it causes <laughs> a wildfire. I mean, that wasn't a human's fault, right? Like this just happened and, and you need to keep an eye on it. But uh, I have seen uh, a couple big fires. So I've lived in Boulder I and mean, I travel a lot um, to go chase weather and snow, but my, my home base is in Boulder. There have been a number of big fires around here and uh, over the last 15 years or so. And uh, two of them that I think about were human caused, but not in the way that you think, right? This is not somebody throwing out a cigarette because they didn't care. And then, oh, oh, oops, you know, now it's windy. And all. what happened is that somebody had basically just a fire pit fire and they put it out and it was out and it was out for days or weeks but somewhere lurking under it being out there was some ember i mean no you would never know right you would never accuse anybody of being irresponsible about this and then it got very very windy and i mean by very windy i mean 50 plus mile an hour gusts right incredibly windy uh and it was windy enough that it kicked up some of that old fire ash and there was an ember somewhere and it hit something and it created a spark and then the fire and with 50 mile an hour winds like you're not or even 80 90 mile an hour winds in some cases there's just nothing you can there's no airplanes can't fly to put them out you know firefighters just have to stay away and then it's out of control and moving quickly 
So I, I don't have any solution to that. You know, it's not like, will we never have a fire outside? I mean, that's probably a pretty unreasonable thing to ask people. Um, but I am cognizant of fires and it might be a, a slightly unpopular view. And I, I'm not, you know, I can't tell people what to do. I don't want to tell people what to do. We all have a different way that we enjoy the outdoors. Um, but when I think about is the risk of having a campfire, even in your backyard or, you know, somewhere, you know, in the backcountry, or, or the, the enjoyment of having a fire versus the risk of potentially causing a massive wildfire. It's like, is that hot dog or marshmallow really worth it? Now, you know, that's an oversimplification. 99.99999% of the time, you know, none of these fires are going to cause anything problematic and you're going to roast your marshmallows and then, you know, the fire is going to go out and it's going to be fine. But I always think about that. And to me, I, I just, I, I don't ever, <laughs> I, I very rarely will ever make a fire or it's in a kind of, you know, if we're at a hut, it's in a, uh, a metal, you know, pit and grate and we, you know, put gallons of water on the thing. And even then, you know, I feel weird because I know it's just, you know, two weeks later, you could have a gust of wind and one spark that could create all this. So I don't have a solution. And a lot of times in life, there is no solution and it's a gray area and it's fine. But I just want to bring that up because it's always on my mind when we, you know, friends and I make a, make a fire somewhere to, you know, roast a marshmallow and you're like, oh man, should I really be doing this? All right, just a rant. Yep. Yeah. I mean, at, at a minimum, at a minimum, well, two two things. One, I do think it's extremely valuable to encourage people to think about that enjoyment versus the risk factor. Again, and paying attention to what is the state of things? Did it just rain the last four days? Has it not rained in three weeks? Um think about those things, make good assessments. And then the idea that if we do make fires, go absolutely over the top just in trying to be so careful. Um, and it doesn't mean that we will take the risk level to zero, but to take the risk level to as close as zero as absolutely possible, that needs to be the new norm. That a hyper a hyper carefulness needs to be the norm. Um, I think that would be probably a rule we could um, agree on. Couldn't agree with you more. Like just over the top is exactly right. Like if, if your friends are making fun of you because you're pouring that much water on the fire, keep going. <laughs> and then, and then yeah, you're in about yeah. the right spot. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. What do you want to say about lightning? Uh, all the things. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't, don't get struck by it. Don't, don't mess around with it. Don't think twice about it. Uh, don't be cavalier about it. Uh, I don't have the exact statistic, but, um, most people that get struck or impacted by lightning don't, don't die. Um, and so when you hear about lightning, I mean, obviously any lightning death or any death from anything is, uh, you know, can devastate a family and friends. Uh, but just from a general statistical standpoint, you know, there's not a lot of people that die from lightning, but um, mostly what happens if there's a strike and it impacts you is you have severe issues with your body and your mind for the rest of the life. Um, and it's it's not a good place um, to be. And, I, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm not the expert on that, but I've done some reading on it. And it's it's a thing that I don't mess around with because you cannot control every bit 
of your exposure. And well, I mean, I guess to, to some extent you can because you can just not be out there. But what I mean by that is lightning doesn't just strike the very top of the mountain. You're like, oh, well, I'm not on the summit, so I'm fine, right? When you're descending, like, no, right? Lightning can strike the ridgeline. It can strike somewhere else somewhat randomly. And of course, yes, the higher elevation exposed areas have a greater probability of being struck versus a lower area, but it is not a guarantee. So, you know, just saying, oh, I'm going to be on the summit and I'll, I'll be heading down and it should be fine uh, <laughs> is not is not the best way to do this. Now, um, I don't, you know, kind of like wildfires, you can over or, um, you know, causing fires by by having, you know, a fire pit or something like that. You can overthink this, right? And I'm not saying don't ever go outside because there's a chance of a thunderstorm. Of course, like, you're going to go outside and things are going to be delayed. And, and sometimes you have to make certain calls to get you out of tricky situations. Um, you're not going to spend your entire life indoors being afraid of this. However, it is um, very important <laughs> to think about this stuff um, in advance and try your best not to put yourself anywhere close to a lightning situation. If you are in a ridgeline and uh, there's a storm coming or you can start to feel that buzz in the air, uh, it is incredibly unsettling. Basically, the only thing you can do at that point is run down the hill. Um, now, you don't want to fall running down the hill because that introduces <laughs> a, a whole host of other problems. So, you know, don't throw yourself off the side of a mountain um, and injure yourself. But um, getting down is is really, if you're in a bad situation, is the best way that you can somewhat decrease um your risk. Now that could mean just going down the ridgeline. It could mean if it's safe enough, getting off the ridgeline and just descending on either side off the trail uh, to a place that's lower on elevation, let the storm pass and then come back up to the trail um, and keep going. Um, another thing to consider, and this is kind of a worst case scenario, but if you find yourself in uh, the air is buzzing or there's just a lightning storm around and you're really concerned um, and you're in a group, even if that group is just you and somebody else um, spread out, um, because, I mean, this is not a happy way to think about this, but if you're right next to each other and you get struck and you both get knocked out, um, there's nobody there to help you. Um, lightning victims do not hold a charge, meaning there is no problem to, if somebody gets knocked out, to go start CPR immediately, to go render aid immediately. You don't have to wait. There's no problem. Um, go. So if, um, if you can at least spread out and somebody, unfortunately, would get struck or multiple people would get struck, hopefully... Other people are able-bodied and can call for help, administer CPR, whatever that needs to happen. So um, again, one, try not to put yourself in that position at all. Two, if you're in that position, get down the hill, get somewhere lower. Um, and three, um, if you can't avoid that, or even if you are getting somewhere lower, make sure that there's a decent amount of space between you and somebody else, um, just so that hopefully both of you are not impacted if there is a strike. Good tips. And I wonder if we can be a bit more specific when you say, quote unquote, spread out. Is there kind of a consensus about how far apart to be? So by spreading out, I think a general rule of thumb might be 15 feet. You know, that's about five yards or so, so five paces. But, you know, that's not a perfect number, right? It's not like lightning can't hurt somebody at at 16 feet or 17 feet. So the way I think about it, if we're out in the backcountry, is I don't want to lose my partners, right? I don't want to be so far away that I don't know where everybody is. Um, but I want to be pretty far away, right? Like I'm not trying to just, you know, be kind of at the minimum distance. Um, and, and you know, another thing that I think of, and, you know, so somebody's asked me, you say, well, okay, you're out there. 
what is safe from lightning? You know, you just told me these places you don't want to be. Where should I be? Right. Um, and there's only two 100% safe place, almost 100% safe places from lightning. Uh, a car, inside a car, or inside a real structure with walls. Not a gazebo, not a picnic pavilion or something like that, but a real structure, a house of some sort of cabin or something like that. So a cabin or a car. Most of us, when we're outside, I mean, if you're at a park, you know, or something like, yeah, go run back to your car, right? That's great, right? But if you're just miles away from the trailhead, uh, obviously you're not getting back there. Um, so a place, another place that is reasonable is a relatively uh, just forest. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be leaning up against a tree, but if you're in a forest and there's thousands of trees, you know, the chances that one, the one right next to you gets struck is reasonably low. So, you know, ideally you're not on a ridgeline or on the summit, but if you can't get back to your car or a real structure, you don't want to be the tallest person in a meadow, right? And yes, you can duck and crouch and all of that, but also if you're in a kind of large forest and not right up against a tree, <laughs> um, chances are on your side that you're not going to be next to the tree that gets struck. But again, there's only two safe spots, car or house. The second you're not in either one of those, um, you're putting yourself in some uh, in some level of risk. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm so scared to go outside that, you know, I'm never going to go outside. Of course, you know, there are times I'm hurrying back from a hike. But I, I like, I, I have seen the aftermath, not with my own eyes, but reading the studies of people that get struck. And also, let's face it, us going outside and hiking or doing whatever we're doing is a choice, <laughs> For most of us, most of us are not professional athletes. And even in that case, you're like, you should have the confidence of saying, I'm not going to go to this spot, you know, or at this moment. So we, we have to just make that choice and realize it's okay. Even if everybody else is heading up to the summit because they are blissfully unaware or don't care, it is okay <laughs> to turn around and feel like it's not your moment uh, or to go somewhere else and then, and then try that again. I have been hiking on a 14er in Colorado coming down, you know, coming down at 10, 30, 11 in the morning, clouds are already gathering. I'm nervous, even though I'm two thirds of the way down, I don't want to be outside in that. And there's just hundreds of people going up. Now, based on statistics, almost all of those people or all those people are going to be fine, right? It's just not going to happen to be a lightning strike just happens to not happen there, right? And just by pure statistical chance, almost all of those people will be fine. Uh, but I don't want to put myself in that position because it's my choice <laughs> to hike that day or not. Um, so I often on the trail uh, will remind people, you know, kindly, <laughs> you know, like, hey, you know, there's a storm coming. I, I, I am a meteorologist. I'm not telling you not to go, but I'm just saying that, you know, something to be mindful of. And I wouldn't feel comfortable up there, but I'm always careful of not telling people what to do because ultimately it's their decision and I don't want to come at it as like, you know, you shouldn't go try to have fun or, or I'm telling you what to do. And the same thing around avalanche risk too. You know, if I'm out there, I'm not a perfect, av I'm not an amazing avalanche forecaster, but I've taken a bunch of classes and been in the backcountry and I'll meet people that haven't been out in the backcountry before, have very little experience. And I'm not going to tell them like, don't do this thing. <laughs> right. But I just try to give them the framework to understand it. Um, and, and hopefully that's helpful. Let's talk a little bit about planning a day out, right? Whether it's planning a hike or a bike ride or a climb, using available tools. Talk a bit about maybe what you do or just relatedly what you do and or what you would suggest to folks who are like, 
wow, man, all right, so we're talking about smoke and wildfires and lightning, and now I'm kind of afraid, but I do want to get out. What are some of the better practices that you use and or suggest? Yep, so summer is the complete opposite of winter, right? Winter, at, at least... That's true. Yeah, by, yeah well, that's... By definition, Joel, good job. <laughs> Fair enough, you heard it here first. Um, so when I think about planning adventures in the winter, I'm often thinking about... Most days are, are are okay, but I'm looking for that super special powder day. Now, of course, we are in the backcountry. You know, so that's almost opposite because you want kind of a more calm day out there, you know, with a, with a stable snowpack. But from a powder day, I'm looking at maybe one day that will rise above the others to just be clearly an amazing day. From the summer, almost all days are fine. Almost all hours of all days are fine, right? You're not going to have these risks. And what you're looking for is the few moments when it is risky enough that you might choose to do something different, right? So um, because the summer as defaulted is just most of the time is fine, uh, I usually don't use weather as my number one planning tool. I, I just, all right, cool. We're going to go do this hike on the weekend or we're going to go do this other thing and, and let's just default that we're going to go do that thing. And then within five to seven days, um, I can start looking at the forecast for precipitation and lightning. So again, you know, is precipitation that big of a deal? I don't know. It's not a big deal if it rains when you're camping, something like that, or if it rains in the afternoon when you're off the hike. Um, but lightning is a big deal. So um, on open snow, we do have lightning forecasts. You can tap into any location on a map. Um, you can search for a location, but you can also just tap on a map anywhere uh, on land in the world. And um, but lightning, sorry, lightning forecasts are just for um, for the United States for now. We will broaden those out um, to the rest of the world. But for now, it's just uh, in the United States. But one of the variables, in addition to temperature and precipitation and wind, is lightning. So I'll start looking at that and just get an understanding, is lightning um, going to be an issue? Um, so that is probably my number one thought. Um, but hey, if lightning's an issue at 1 or 2 or 3 in the afternoon, uh, cool. I'll, I'll go earlier, right, um, with, with an adequate buffer. So that doesn't tell me not to go, but that tells me when I should go. Um, and then I will look at that five-day wildfire or uh, five-day air quality forecast just to get an idea. Hey, is there anything that's already happening that I should be worried about in terms of um, smoke? And then as we get closer, if there are wildfires or smoke close by, I will start using that two-day um, kind of outlook um, for smoke. But, you know... Again, everybody's a little bit different. I'm not going to tell you if there's a you know a, a tiny amount of or even a moderate amount of smoke in the air that you shouldn't go out, right? Like that's everybody to kind of understand and and think about their own health and, and what that means. Um, but that that's the level. So I just plan stuff in the summer. Then I look at lightning five-ish days out. I look at lightning timing, thinking if my plans will work for that. You know, for instance, if I'm hiking and I know my speed. Um, and I know it can be done by 11 in the morning, I'm fine. If I'm hiking with my five-year-old son and speed is like, there's no guarantee on any amount of speed <laughs> at that point. And it depends on the number of snacks and all of that. Then I don't want to say, oh, well, I'm, I need to be back by one. Otherwise there's going to be lightning. Like I won't go that day because it's just too stressful. Right. So I, I kind of roll that around in my mind. Um, and then I also look at, at air quality um, as well. And, you know, from an air quality perspective, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, but if you're just trying to go outside and, and get some, get some, I don't say fresh air, but just walk around a little bit for half an hour, you know, maybe it's not a big deal. If you're going to try to do a three hour run, um, you know, maybe that's more of a big deal. So um, we can adjust that. But we do um, have the lightning forecast on open snow. Again, lightning is hard to forecast. This is not like smoke where I have a high degree of act, you know confidence in it. Lightning is basically just saying like, hey, there could be storms around and those storms could produce lightning. 
Um, it is not saying, oh, at two o'clock, there will be a lightning strike at this point. You know, we cannot do that. Science cannot do that. Um, but at least to know that there is a chance hopefully helps you kind of organize your time. Uh, and again, it's not about being off the summit by the first strike. Ideally, um, I mean, you're back of the car, but but reasonably, you're below tree line, right, in, in, an, in an area. And you're also keeping in mind, hey, do I walk three miles through an open field, even below tree line on the way back to the car? Because that's pretty scary and risky, you know, with lightning too. So um, it might sound like there's a lot going on in my brain around lightning, um, and it's a little bit over the top, uh, but I want no part of the headline that says meteorologist struck by lightning. Um, I don't, I don't look, I don't want that headline. Um, and all of this is avoidable um, too. We can just not be out there at that, that moment. So that's how I run through um, going out kind of on a bigger effort day in the summer. We've talked about this through this conversation now, but I'd love to maybe put it into one spot here and just kind of uh, put in one place a, a nice recap of some of the mistakes people make. So I think we should talk about two things. One, from your point of view, what are some of the most common mistakes people make? And then what are some of the most consequential mistakes people make? Yeah, that is an awesome question. Consequential mistakes, I think, are around potentially consequential, <laughs> I should say, right? Because again, I we, we can look at whether in this way of like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared of all of these things um, that I'm not going to go outside. And that's obviously not the point here, right? So, um, but potentially consequential mistakes are things that could be a really, really big deal. Being struck by lightning. You know, if there's a storm and it rains a little bit and you twist an ankle on the way down something, you know, obviously not enjoyable and you could need to be out there for a while because you're going to be moving really slow. But uh, but generally it's, you know, you're not going to risk your life often unless, you know, you're so far away, it's hard, it's hard to get you out. Um, but consequential is lightning, 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 lightning. Uh, and I'll say it three more times, lightning, lightning, lightning. Um, that is the thing that I think about all the time. And I don't think people give it enough thought because again, statistically, your chance, even if you make every wrong decision, <laughs> your chance of being struck is just very, very low, right? Lightning is going to strike somewhere else or it's not going to be in your exact area. But that is that is the, cons the consequence of being struck is your life changes forever. It's not, I have a, you know, a twisted ankle, right? So I don't, I don't, I mean, this is very similar to an avalanche, right? Like, oh, you can make all the wrong decisions and you're probably fine. But if, if it happens to be that one time, like that is a life-changing moment. Um, so uh, not respecting lightning and just thinking, oh, people hike all the time and it's not a big deal and I'm just going to go out there and there's always lightning on top of these 14ers or all these other peaks and it's fine. I mean, that's what a lot of people do, but I, I don't do that because I have a very healthy um, fear <laughs> of respect, I should say, for lightning. Um, a common mistake and, and I don't think this is anybody's fault, but maybe this is a trick that people can, can take with them, is that uh, is you don't look at the forecast right before you leave. And you can look and you can look and you can look for the days. You're like, cool, thunderstorm starting at 2, thunderstorm starting at 2 for the last three days. I've seen the forecast for you know my climb on Saturday is going to be thunderstorm starting at 2. Cool, I'm good, right? It's just going to be thunderstorm starting at 2. And I'm going to bed at nine o'clock at night. I'm going to wake up early at four or five and get out there and we'll, we'll be good. Check the weather when you wake up. And the reason that is, is that especially for thunderstorms in the summer, 
Um, the what happens for rain and thunderstorms the afternoon of one day can impact the next day. So if all of the forecast models think that there's going to be, let's just say Saturday, you're going out on a hike or a climb, and then there's going to be thunderstorms starting at two o'clock. That's on Saturday. The models are thinking there's going to be a certain amount of rain or thunderstorms on Friday. But what if there are is more rain or thunderstorms on Friday than the models believe? What happens then is you get more moisture into the ground. That moisture provides the fuel for thunderstorms the next day. The models take hours to know it has rained more than they expect, put that into the forecast, and then update the forecast. So if you don't look right when you leave your house, if that's possible, and you have internet then, um, you might miss a change in the forecast, which would show, hey, all of a sudden thunderstorms starting at 11 or 12 versus 2 o'clock. Now, people get angry when the forecast changes. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're cheating. You're just moving the prediction so you can be more accurate. And what I would say is that's the whole point of forecasting. Like, do you, do you want it to be the two-day forecast to be, you know, some perfect or you can make fun of it? Or do you just want, you know, the best forecast you can get? And so, for instance, storm chasing, um, you know, this afternoon, I am looking at models right up until the time I leave my house. Then I'm constantly looking at updates. Not like I just looked last night, like, oh, cool, that's what's going to happen. No, everything changes all the time. So, um, and that example I just gave you of an earlier thunderstorm is not theoretical. Um, I almost killed my friend um, who was climbing a very exposed multi-pitch climb in Rocky Mountain National Park uh, years ago when I told him that, yeah, it looks like there's going to be storms 12 or 1, you're fine in the morning. But it rained a ton more than expected the day before, so there was a lot more moisture, fuel for thunderstorms, and that morning, the first storms went up at 11 or 12, or I'm sorry, 10 or 11 in the morning instead of, instead of noon. And I mean, luckily... They didn't get struck by lightning, but he said, you know, it was terrifying, right? They're on this super exposed piece of rock, uh, no way easily to get down, and there's lightning all around them. Um, and so that was a good, <laughs> that was a good um, uh, lesson. And and not just trust the model forecast, but if you're super inclined, you know, look at radar the night before, just kind of ballpark. Hey, is it raining a lot? Did it say it was going to rain a lot? Does it seem like it's raining more? than expected, uh, and then keep your eye on the forecast. So that's a common mistake of not looking at the forecast right before you leave because it can and does change, and that's okay. And I feel like maybe we ought to add the caveat here when we're talking about most common mistakes people make, most consequential mistakes. These are all sort of most common weather-related mistakes, right? Because yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I, I just, as you're talking, I'm like thinking about you know, as we're talking about backcountry skiing safety, you know, one of the big things we tend to talk about, and I think correctly, rightly, I'm glad we do, is, you know, thinking about what happens if you ended up getting stuck overnight, right? In the backcountry, just the simple thing of having warm enough clothes. Do you have warm enough clothes, potentially even a shelter to be able to make it through a night? And, you know, now we can go through every single best safety practice on earth, and, and I, I don't think we'll do that in this conversation, but that's certainly another thing, and, and actually kind of is very much weather-related. You know, if you do get caught out, or, you know, especially thinking about, since we've been talking about hiking, biking, and climbing, you know, what if there's an accident climbing and your friend Dex has a compound fracture you know, of their lower leg or femur, you're not 
you're not walking out. Like, how far are you from help? Do you have clothing to stay warm? You know, and certainly with some of the big epic mountain bike rides that people are doing, and as e-bikes are letting people get further and further out, now we start, like, really needing to think about, you know, does anybody have any backcountry medicine training, any wilderness training? So... All of these things are part of, I think, what it means to go recreate responsibly, you know, but I I think for this particular conversation, just wanted to make it very explicit. We're talking about some of the like weather related mistakes. Yes, that that's exactly right. And and let me put this out there. You know, I'm, I've been thinking about weather in the backcountry for 20 years, Um, but all of the other non-weather things, it's a constant work in progress for me. Huh, what should I have in my pack? Should I be thinking about this? How should I do that? Hey, I was kind of cavalier on that, so I should probably change this, right? So I don't think anybody should take out from this podcast that, oh, you've got to be perfect or you shouldn't go out there, right? But it's just the more you hear this, the more you think about this, hopefully, you know, it slowly permeate, permeates your brain. And every time you go out, you, you just get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better, Um at all of this. And again, like I'm throwing out these common weather scenarios and mistakes. Hey, not to say don't go out there, right? Like if you go out, there's going to be things that don't go right, right? Like that's, that's just the deal. Just hopefully this permeates your brain just a little bit. Maybe that one time you go on that super committing route, uh, you remember like, oh man, let me just check, you know, the weather the night before and just see what's going on right now or go, you know, look that morning or leave an hour earlier just for a little bit more spacing or take a look at the route and make sure you understand, hey, if lightning starts earlier, what am I going to do? Um, right. And so I, I think at some point, because obviously, you know, most of us are going to be out in a place with no service, uh, you know, no internet service uh, at some point. And then you can't really get updates on on weather, which is challenging, right? Because even with storm chasing, like I look at all the modeling, what am I actually doing? I'm going to be driving around looking at radar, right? I mean, like that is the number one thing to do. At some point, we'll have enough of a constellation of satellites and accessibility that we will have some ability to kind of get this remote data on your phone. I know, you know, I've talked to a bunch of people that hike big mountains like Denali or things, and and you can satellite in and get some data, um, but it's you know not really good enough yet on your phone to get, you know, pictures and images and, and all this weather map data. You're usually texting somebody <laughs> on a sat phone to, to get updates and, and things like that. But at some point we'll get there um, with the apps. But for right now, you know, there is a gap, right? When you go outside um, and you have no more data, then you're just using uh, your visual clues. And that's another actual issue to think about that I didn't mention here is that when you're, uh, when you're hiking or recreating, climbing, mountain biking, whatever, um, keep in mind what direction the weather is coming from, what direction the thunderstorms are coming from. Um, and you can generally see that by forecast. So on open snow, you can look at the forecast radar. That's a map layer um, for the next 48 hours or so. And just get a sense of what direction the weather is coming from. Because if you're climbing something and you're on the east side of a massive ridge and the weather is coming from the west side, you will have no clue that it's coming. I mean, and that's, you know, I don't have any solution to that, but it's good to acknowledge that fact because you will be surprised when that whatever comes over the ridge, rather than if you have visibility on something, then you have more confidence of what's going on. Well, I'm glad we had this conversation and we've, and we've talked a lot about some of the capabilities that Open Snow has. And so I want to just make this as clear for people as possible 
we're big fans of Open Snow. I know a ton of people in the Blister audience are subscribers to Open Snow and the rest, but let's say for some of the people who are primarily using Open Snow for snow forecasts, do we all have access to all of the features that you've been talking about in this episode? Uh, the great answer is yes. <laughs> so we used to, uh, and we still do, have two separate apps, Open Snow and Open Summit. And the concept was that they would be uh, related. Open Snow would be winter, Open Summit would be summer. Um, we did that years ago with that concept, but then as we got more into it, and you know, things evolve, thinking evolves, right? Just like the forecast. We realized that there were two problems with that. One, as a small team of developers and meteorologists, we're now having to keep up two apps, two websites for the two different services. And the other issue is now people, <laughs> our customers, need to download a second app, need to figure out which app they should use for which time period, right? And there's all these shoulder season issues. And uh, so we made the decision that we're going to combine everything. So Open Summit, uh, we're now talking in July of 2023. Open Summit will be around and functional uh, through the end of 2023, but we're basically done with that. And at some point, that will be just shut down. Uh, Open Snow despite the name, <laughs> has everything that we're talking about. Smoke forecasts uh, uh, by mid-July-ish of 2023, we probably will have the wildfire hotspots and perimeters in there. And then also the weather data, the, the lightning data that's already in open snow. So when you go to a location in open snow, whether that's your house or the nearby peak or whatever it might be, um, there's a couple tabs on that. There's a snow tab and a, or a forecast tab, a snow report, but there's a weather tab too. So you can tab through all of those and see all the data um, that you need an hour by hour on the weather tab. So you can see chance of precipitation and lightning and winds. And it's for that exact elevation. So it's really useful. Uh, you know, you can pinpoint the peak you're going after or the climb or whatever it might be uh, and look at what the weather is for that, um, that exact elevation as well. And that's all already on Open Snow uh, website app. Um, and also forthcoming in mid-July of 2023, we'll have um, two favorites lists. So right now we just have a list of all your favorite locations. Um, we will have the ability to have a winter and summer favorites list. So you'll be able to toggle those back and forth. So you could have, you know, your house and uh, that nearby hike and whatever objective you have for the summer list. And then a bunch of the ski resorts or backcountry areas or whatever it might be um, on your winter list so that you don't have to commingle all of those things. So that that's coming in July of 2023 as well. It's very cool, man. It's very impressive and it's very cool. I think one of the reasons why so many of us are subscribers is OpenSnow's great. The user interface is great. It's constantly getting updated. And on top of all of that, like you are one of us in the sense that like this dude just likes to ski and be out and go outside. And so it's great to have, like, frankly, this is not the time where it would be sufficient at all to me. If it's like, well, he's my friend and he likes to ski, but he kind of sucks at the meteorology or the user interface stuff. I would be uninterested completely. But when we get like, the team of developers and such attention paid to the user interface and a continued evolution of the offerings. And these are people who 
are doing exactly what all of us are trying to do, which is like go outside and be safe and understand what's happening with the weather. It's kind of great. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I like it too. <laughs> you know? Good. And, uh, but yeah, this, this is, this is, you know, even though I went through the MBA program years ago, in addition to meteorology and, and all that, this wasn't us sitting down and thinking, Oh, what big business can we, you know, come up with? This was just going out and be like, wait, I'm using these all these tools. None of them are like they're fine, but they're not pulling everything together that I want. And so I'm not saying that Open Snow is, you know, this perfect thing. We're constantly tweaking, adjusting. I have a bazillion ideas of how to make everything better. But yes, we are trying to get the data that our niche of people <laughs> want. You know, we don't want to be the default weather app. For every but for all billion you know iPhone users across the world or billions of Android users, but the the people that understand that going outside and adventuring requires a different level of of information uh, and they care about it more. That's that's our people, um, and we're all those people <laughs> too. So yeah, I, I appreciate the kind words, and uh, I'm just so lucky. I feel so lucky that I get to work on this. This is the deal. Like I, this is not like, cool, I'm going to go sell this, you know, in two years and then work on something else like this. I just love, uh, this. And I constantly, I, mean, I was listening to I don't know, something working out this morning. I had three more ideas and I ran to write them down and, you know, I'm like, it's just how it goes. So, um, it's fun that we have uh, a large group of users that enjoys it, that finds value in it. And, um, and we can keep working hard and make it better. Hmm. It's always fun to talk and um, appreciate this. And and I will just issue this reminder one more time. We will include a link to our last conversation in the show notes of this episode. And I think everything we've just gone through here, uh, if anybody has enjoyed this one, I think they're really also going to enjoy our last conversation too. So uh, check that one out as well. And, and uh, say hi to the team and Joel, keep up the good work. And I hope you see a beautiful, powerful storm this afternoon. That affects nobody but farm fields. I completely agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Joel once again for another great conversation. And seriously, if you are not already subscribed to Open Snow just go to opensnow.com or you can find the Open Snow app in the App Store on your phone. And you should check it out because there is a reason why I myself and many, many, many other people in the outdoor space depend upon Open Snow's forecasts. And as you heard in this conversation, what is being offered at Open Snow continues to evolve and just become more useful for any and every time of year. All right, everybody, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>